Hey everyone, welcome to another Ruby Rogues podcast. I'm David Kimura, and today on our panel we have Andrew Mason. Hello. And we have Nate Hopkins, who is a little bit MIA right now, but he should be joining us in a little bit. And today we are interviewing a special guest, Taylor Jones. Hey. So Taylor, tell us a bit about yourself, who you are, who you work for, and just some of the things that you're doing. So as you mentioned, my name is Taylor Jones. I live in Orlando, Florida, but I work remotely for a company called Heroku, which might be pretty familiar to a lot of people. But uh, my day-to-day job there is supporting kind of the core queue of things that we call. So any general, if you open up a ticket, I'm likely one of the first people we're going to talk to. Um, so helping make sure that our customers feel supported no matter how much uh, they've invested in the platform. So it involves technical debugging and sometimes it just involves clearing up a documentation or something like that. But yeah, cool. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So what are some of the most common issues that you guys kind of see with support? Uh, I would say it's kind of twofold, right? So when Heroku started out, it was initially just this thing for Rails apps, or it was kind of like almost like a Rails online editor. And then it moved pretty quickly into something that was really a deployment solution for everything. So you have a lot of people who are still getting started to this day on the platform. The large majority of those people these days are definitely people who use Node. But you have your fair kind of people that are share people that are trying to try out maybe a new Rails feature. So we see a lot of Webpacker stuff because that released in Rails 5-ish. But we also see just a lot of general uh, technical debugging errors. So the other half of people that we have are customers that have been around for a while or that have significant amounts of investment. So those are a bit deeper, right? They're not just your getting started questions, but they're rather like, hey, this crazy thing happened with my database or whatever. Um, and so we have to kind of track down those issues. So it's really, it's always a grab bag of issues. It's always a new adventure, but we kind of see those two ranges of things. Yeah. What kind of issues did you guys see with Webpacker being introduced into Rails 5? I think it kind of came in tandem with, you know, Yarn was also adopted as a, as a default. And that doesn't mean a lot on the, on the get-go, but for people that aren't used to Node apps, because I think Web Webpacker was a really cool introduction to that kind of the ability just to use React and stuff like that. People were just getting used to those concepts because uh, from the Rails point of view, especially if you've been a Rails dev for a bit, you're like, what is this new JavaScript stuff? So you either have um, timeouts of builds if you're trying to Webpack a ton of stuff. And that's more your complex mm-hmm. use case. But then you just generally have like, you know, Webpack is pretty verbose in its outfit. <laughs> And a lot of people just get really overwhelmed by that. And so like, hey, my thing's not building. What's going on? You go look at the build logs and it's really just, hey, this, this file in this place uh, has a syntax error or whatever rules you have kind of caught it up. And so it's kind of it's really reading. <laughs> it's doing some reading for people and just kind of pointing out stuff. But you see those kind of two ranges of things. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, Webpacker 
you know, just a very simple Rails application, not even using anything in Webpacker yet. So you haven't yarn added anything. It's going to have like over 10,000 things in the node modules folder. It's insane. Yeah, that's a really new concept to people too, is the idea that like you have this node modules folder stuff. We have an existing kind of thing with Heroku sometimes where we'll, excuse me, we'll, we'll kind of restore a cache um, for build to build. And the trick with that is though, is that let's say you change a dependency, you change the version of something, uh, usually something that's pretty simple from the Rails point of view with gems. The node modules will kind of have that existing version pulled up. And you know, if you've developed a node, you just kind of say, okay, let me just delete the node modules folder. A lot of times you have to walk people through that kind of the whole set of tools and the set, set of steps for debugging those kind of apps because they're a little bit different from Rails and Ruby. Yeah. You know, one of my biggest grievances about the node modules folder is that there's so much in there, it's overwhelming. And I really wish that there was just a separate folder within the node modules called like dependencies that everything got dumped in there except for the ones that have specifically added in with like a yarn add stimulus. Or whatever. Yeah. But anywho, yeah, Webpacker has really started to become the more standard as far as the Rails application goes. And we've seen it come, it's made a lot of progress over the years. And now things have really changed in Rails 6, where you don't just have Webpacker as a added feature to use. Now it's really starting to replace things uh, specifically with your JavaScript assets. So if you've played around with Rails 6 or all, if you start a new application in the app assets, there's no longer a JavaScript folder, which you know really kind of threw me for a loop initially because I'm like, okay, well, I have this gem that has some JavaScript assets. How do you add that stuff in? And I think that while a good change, it definitely has complicated things. Have you guys seen issues or questions arise where someone's upgraded their Rails application or something, and now they're having problems with Webpacker? You know, I personally actually haven't seen a ton of Rails 6 issues in our platform yet, which is pretty surprising. We have some internal stuff we've upgraded to 6, but we've kind of you know been able to handle those issues as is. I think that you bring a good point about the kind of progression of things, because right now a common issue that we see with build timeouts, for example, is the fact that you do have... Like if you're, let's say you just installed Webpacker, right? And you have an existing app. You're still going to, in some ways, be using the asset pipeline for some things. And, yeah. you know, like you're going to be in this in-between stage. And so you have a lot of people that have either this massive builds or these like kind of really messy situations where it's like you're kind of in between using two things. I think it'll personally clean it up that thing. But I think that at the same time, that may come to a shock for some people who maybe weren't aware of it. So we personally haven't seen that kind of stuff, but I expect that's going to cause a lot of confusion or issues or just general like, hey, I used to do this and now upgraded Rails, what's the deal? But luckily, that's kind of a public thing on the Rails part of, portion of the thing. So people usually don't come to Heroku and like, hey, my Rails thing's broken. But we always have people sometimes that just kind of ask for advice or whatever. Yeah, I will say the one thing I wish had happened with Rails 6, like after we got Webpacker in Rails 5, I wish we had moved the entire asset pipeline over to Webpacker instead of still having like our images and stuff in the asset pipeline and the JavaScript through Webpacker. I personally, I put everything in Webpacker. So Webpacker does all the images, JavaScript and CSS. So I don't have that weird, like, here's my assets folder, here's my JavaScript folder. Like I've, I've removed the asset folder completely and done some things in the JavaScript folder and renamed that a little bit. 
mm-hmm. to basically serve all my front end assets through there. Yeah, I think that's a great point because I think that that's what Webpacker is really powerful at. It's like if you're going to use a tool like that, why not embrace it? But I think I, I don't really know. I actually I should know like the, really the reasoning behind that change. And I'm really interested in the conversation behind it. But I think that that's my hope too, is that we're at heads at least. Um, and I know that's a pretty, it's a pretty strict thing to say, hey, you're using Webpacker now. But at the same time, you know, when Asset Pipeline came out, it's like, hey, you're using this, deal with it. Yeah, I think, it, I think it's like leveraging a good part of Webpacker, but I think that's like what people use it for and it's what it's really good at. So why not like leverage that by default? Yeah, the one thing that really stumbled me initially, and I think this was on a Rails 5.2 application, when I started using Webpacker, I created a new Rails 5.2 application. So in the app assets, I had a JavaScript folder with the application.js. Then I also had a application.js file in my JavaScript packs. And when I included both of those into my layouts file, there was some kind of naming conflict and I just could not figure out for the life of me why the JavaScript webpacks were not running. So it just only loaded the one from my assets and not from the JavaScript packs. Even though I was using the JavaScript pack tag, it was a weird naming conflict. And it wasn't until I actually renamed the JavaScript file my assets did things just kind of magically start working. It's such a great point because I think that I felt like, at least personally, the learning curve is really, really high. That's just for me. Like uh, I have a unique experience of that, right? But I think that it can be confusing, especially if you're used to certain conventions with Rails. Or if you're somebody coming from a different ecosystem, like let's say you're a Node person and you're like, I really want to learn this Ruby on Rails for a backend. You're going to have a little bit of trouble understanding, okay, I have these kind of naming conflicts. Like for me, like it was the hardest thing just to figure out how to like render a pack. That wasn't just the gen- generic like hello world thing, but like, hey, I wrote this React code. I want to insert it here in this view that um, maybe even has a little bit like JavaScript that's being delivered with the asset pipeline or something like that. Yeah. One of my favorite things to do is, and this is something where the documentation just was not clear on, is being able to lay out and manage the assets within your JavaScript file. So basically you have the JavaScript folder in your app folder, and you have your packs folder, and you have your application JS. But where do you go from there? Where do you put all your JavaScript files? You know, some like if you're using Simulus or something. So you could just kind of dump it all in the same folder, but then you kind of digress to now you have a thousand different files in a single folder. So creating namespaces, and then in your application JS file, you can actually use import whatever you know from that folder name. And the key thing there is, which it took me a while to figure this out, is that you had to have a index.js within that folder because that's going to be the entry point with Webpacker when you do an import. It wasn't until I looked at some other repositories or other Yarn packages that I was like, oh, that's why things are getting magically loaded in. Yeah, it's, and I think it's kind of a thing where it's like you want to let people be free to understand maybe parts of the Node ecosystem or like how kind of Webpack-based JavaScript works. But it's, really, it's a really different concept of things, right? Like, especially coming from Rails, where it's like, I don't say everything feels magically loaded, but it sort of does. You don't have to explicitly include, uh, there's a certain way that you have to kind of organize your assets. But with JavaScript, there really is no like definitive, this is how you do it for any Node or React application. For a lot of times, when you get to the core React docs, they're just like, 
yeah, here's React, here's how to make a basic app. You put it all in one file, folder. We have different kind of ways of uh, arranging it with the, you know, Redux and stuff like that. But that's really confusing too if you're not used to the concepts behind that. So, Yeah, I think one thing that really benefited me is because I came or started writing Rails, I guess right before 5.0 got released. So I had very little intro to like how the asset pipeline worked. And then suddenly Webpack came out. And then I dove like into that a lot, like very beginning. And like you guys are saying, it was really hard at first to understand what was going on. But because I hadn't, I hadn't really established like, okay, I have asset, it goes here to like the level that some of my peers had, I was able to kind of migrate my mindset over to Webpacker a little bit easier. And I will say the one thing about the index.js, I was actually listening to a JavaScript podcast where they were talking about something like that. And then suddenly it all clicked and I like jumped onto my Rails app and did that. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. I see it now. Yeah. Especially for people who are coming from a Rails background that do not have the in-depth knowledge of JavaScript, like those little tidbits of, you know, tips and tricks are really important to know. And I really think that that's where the documentation for Webpacker is lacking it just kind of says, here's this new magical thing, start using it. And you're just kind of left to explore how to do it yourself. And that's the dangerous part because that's how we create unmaintainable applications that are just a spaghetti mess of you know, unmaintainable code that are in weird places. So I spent a lot of time initially when I started with Webpacker to figure out how am I going to organize my folder, my files, and structure the JavaScript side of my application. Yeah, I think that's, that's a great point. I think it's also about how you want to even use it, right? So for some people, they I think this is what was kind of interesting about Webpacker is that um, as opposed to traditionally, right? So let's say you wanted to use React with the Rails, right? You'd install the React Rails gem, which was great, but it was kind of the pretense of like, hey, listen, like you're just gonna like either render that or you're gonna kind of initially build this front end. Whereas I think Webpacker makes it a little bit more accessible just to kind of put little small little bits of React code or any kind of uh, Angular or anything that works with Webpack code in there, which is cool, but I think it kind of adds to the confusion a little bit more where there's not this definitive thing uh, or this definitive way to do it or uh, this kind of yeah, like me, like structure needs to go throughout. And so I, I think I really agree with the, I mean, some of the application stuff. I think what's hard is that that's kind of how the JS community feels to me sometimes, where it's just like everybody's <laughs> doing something really unique, really different, really cool. It makes me appreciate like being part of Rails. For me, my last job, I wrote a lot of Ember, which is like an interesting discussion point because it's not Webpack uh, based. Mm-hmm. But I did enjoy the fact that like there was a little bit of that structure there. Uh, whereas like, I, I feel like learning React was terrifying to me because I was like, I could learn this one way and I could go to a job somewhere and they'd be like, well, we never react to this picture. Our uh, application's this way or we render like multiple React apps everywhere all the time. And it's it's kind of crazy, but it's really overwhelming. Yeah. And that kind of brings up a good point too. Like just take React, for example. You know, I'm not dissing React even though I don't care for it. But if you start a new Ruby on Rails application with the intention of using React, you have like four different distinct ways you could go. You could install React with Webpacker. You could use the React Rails gem. You could use the React on Rails gem. Or you could have a completely separate React front end with a separate Rails API backend. So it's like, 
you know, that's that's my main issue with the JavaScript framework community is that there is no standard. There is no golden path or golden triangle, best way, best practices. It's just whatever the team feels like or whatever they are familiar with, even if it's not the ideal way to do it. The real question is, can we make it through an episode without you or I dissing React? <laughs> I don't think that's possible. Not on this uh, end, at least, honestly. No. It's, it's a hot topic with people. I think it's it's hard because we all like feel strongly about it Like a lot of times. Even developers do that, right? So for me, I really like Ember, but for me, I started on React because I knew that it was popular. That being said, like it could be frustrating. <laughs> but it's so, it's like so much the internet's made up of it now, which is cool, but also interesting for the next five, 10 years when, you know, somebody's going to kind of be like, well, I'm maintaining technically a legacy React application around something, whatever else is new now. Yeah. And that's the thing is that, you know, hopefully we're not creating products that are only going to live for one to two years, like most people hold their jobs. Hopefully they are creating a product that will last, you know, for a long time, you know, 10 years, 20 years. And to do that, there's only one right solution, and it's to create a maintainable application, not use whatever hottest new flavor the JavaScript framework is or whatever. And I think that's where a lot of people run into problems. They jump on the microservices bandwagon too early, and they are creating an application that's not really maintainable because now it's a complete mess or the infrastructure is a mess, and they have a lot of things to deal with. Or they're creating a completely separate JavaScript application with the API backend, but they're doing it in a way that's just not really conducive or maintainable because they're, they've are they added so much complexities with the JavaScript framework. And that's my biggest aversion to jumping on new technology like that, is that my main goal and my main focus is to create something that's going to sustain time. And I think by jumping on something else like that, we're not going to get that. Yeah, I, I totally agree, right? Is that you, you're having, and I think that's such a hard value for me to some people coming up because I think that they think in terms of like, hey, I, I just want to do this thing because uh, it's so interesting. But I think not, not, maybe not necessarily the novelty, but the, the newness of things has kind of worn off a little bit. We're kind of, you're seeing that community really get to the point where they're kind of in that mid-range of like, hey, this is beyond, like, we're beyond the coolness factor. We're in the factor of like, all right, how do we really like maintain this thing? But also how do we kind of move forward? Because I think what's what's kind of weird to me, and I think JavaScript sort of solves this for like ES5, ES6, ES7, ES whatever model, uh, modules. But like you're, I think uh, Slack actually wrote a really good post about this recently about the, with the rewrite that they did. They did a lot of jQuery initially in their application, but they started to do, uh, basically, the, the new ES modules for their rewrite or their progressive rewrite, whatever they want to call it. What's interesting to me is I want to see this Slack post five, 10 years down the line that says, okay, we had all the, we had an ES5 bit of code here, we had ES6 bit of code here, and we want to refactor it. Like, how do we do that or how do we approach that? And so, how, there are, so, how do we keep our architecture consistent throughout the years? Whereas I think for me, what's really cool is that, like, and especially as somebody who goes into support, we don't obviously support like older Rails stuff anymore because it falls, or you could technically run like a new, a supported Ruby version with the old Rails, but that's also like kind of messy. We don't really see a lot of older Rails apps, but what I can tell is like, if I'm going to go debug old Rails app for somebody, I know that structure is consistent. I know the kind of principles behind it are consistent. I know that certain 
uh, things are going to be approached this way. So I'm not really feeling like, okay, I don't know. Whereas there's some no apps I'll open up and you know, they stick everything in their app. And I can kind of point and say, yeah, I think so. I think this is where it goes, but everybody kind of makes it their own rules. So it kind of, it makes me hard as a support person to, to support it. But it makes it even feel for the customer more because it's like, yo, yeah, like you're going to have to, you're, you're the guy that walks up or girl that walks away with this at the end of the day and has to like maintain this and keep this going uh, beyond just our conversational support. And so I think that's something that the community is already grappling with, but I think we'll especially grapple with the years to come. Yeah. I think I'll say one of the interesting parts, and this is something I covered in my talk about uh, Webpacker, is the fact that like, I think that I'm still big in Ember, but I think that a lot of my last shop used it, and uh, Heroku actually uses a lot of Ember stuff still, uh, is I think it felt like really awkward for that community to kind of feel left out a little bit, because like it is a really cool framework, and they actually have a dedication to Broccoli, which is a different... It's a little bit of a different kind of approach to compressing, compiling, and serving assets. But I think it's like it's like this weird thing where like all these JavaScript frameworks are, you know, on uh, Webpacker now, or if you want to have them there. Uh, but if you're running Ember, you're pretty much still stuck with the old way of either just running a completely separate front end, which is pretty easy with what they do and how they build it, but uh, or using a gem to kind of stick it together. And if you want a big monolith or kind of separate it, I guess monolith. I don't really know what to call that sometimes because I think we try to assign names and meanings to something and it's really just like, yeah, it's just a big, it's a big app, but like with two distinct separations, like they don't, you know, cross <laughs> for each other, but they're not like two separate entities you deploy. Yeah. And, you know, I'm really glad to see that Rails is always moving forward. You know, the Rails core. So, you know, they've introduced Webpacker to kind of solve a lot of these sprockets or asset pipeline woes that people were having. But then in Rails 6.1, they're also introducing the action view components, which is a Rails spin on doing something kind of like React within your Rails application, which almost negates the need, especially if you have your Rails core, Stimulus, TurboLinks, and then the action view components, it almost negates the need to have a JavaScript framework because you get these they're not partials. They are little separate components, which are going to allow you to not only keep your tests all within like RSpec or mini tests, and then you can get test coverage on your views, but they're actually showing speed improvements over rendering partials. Mm. I love that idea though, because I think that it's, I think people realize they have to be using Webpacker and uh, with like any kind of major JavaScript framework, right? Is that, you can. You really only want the JavaScript for certain things, right? So I think about if I have a blog mm-hmm. and I, I want to maybe make a comment form, a React component, or a JavaScript-ish component to replace this like re- like JavaScript application. I just want to have some more interactivity on this comment form. And so maybe maybe we're seeing this swing of how people are developing to be more like I want to use this framework or this thing or this way or this library to kind of accomplish something, but I don't want like it to be everything in my app. I just want it to be this or there or, or someplace else. And so I think that where maybe some of these things like stimulus, I think especially is, is interesting because I think I haven't seen an app that uses it yet ever again, but I would love to see it. So if you, if you have a problem, I have a ticket, I'll talk to you. But I think the utility and the pitch and like the, the value pitch of that becomes so much greater uh, when you're like, hey, I want to use JavaScript for this, that, and the other, but not everything, which is kind of the whole pitch that TurboLinks and uh, all that stuff made way back in the day is that like, hey, like if you just want to render this really quick, do it. Like, go for it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Turbo Lynx has come a long ways from the pre-version 3 and pre-5, where it was just a nightmare adding it into your application. You know, it was something where a lot of people just opted to skip it because it broke so many of their existing JavaScript libraries. And today, I've just, I've not run into that issue at all. It's such a good point because I think that's like what the value of, I think why I'm glad that Webpacker got added is that it kind of says, hey, like we want to have something that can kind of, or all these things can sort of coexist if they want to. Whereas beforehand, like, yeah, you have to get these kind of, to get, I think, I don't know that internal kind of makeup of every uh, front-end JavaScript application gem that was made, but a lot of, some, I saw a lot of stores that were like, hey, just disable this, that, and the other, and do all this kind of uh, modification work to the core Rails experience just to get your thing going. And that's really, really hard, I think, for, because it just made, it, you kind of turned apps into like a little bit just special kind of one-off things rather than like a consistent mm-hmm. Rails-ish looking things. And also, I think one of the most important things that Webpacker added to the Rails community was a way to manage your JavaScript assets, which we really didn't have a good way to do that before. You could create a wrapper gem, almost like a Rails engine that you would then pull in manually the JavaScript assets or whatever library, and then include that in your application.js file. But that wasn't really maintainable long-term because there are so many more JavaScript libraries than there are people, really. And to maintain all of that or to find one that's compatible is just a nightmare. So having that separate asset management just for the JavaScript libraries, I think is going to be a huge, um, huge help to the community. Yeah, one thing I'll say about that is when I first started working in Rails, I had trouble with that, with the asset pipeline in JavaScript, because like if you didn't include like one of your JavaScript packages in the right order, then everything broke and it, you had to take hours trying to figure it out. And all those problems sort of just disappeared when we started using Webpacker, which I really appreciate. Except one of my biggest kind of gripes, and it's not even so much a gripe, but just something that I had to learn about Webpacker is that when you import something in into the application.js file, it's not globally accessible. So, for example, if you import in jQuery, you can't just go to your terminal or in the dev console and then you know use jQuery because it's not yet defined. So that was something that you had to really figure out does this library truly need to be globally accessible and then put it in the uh, config file to include it in or to require it? Yeah, I think that's such a new concept to a lot of people too. I think that's what's important about it is that it's like you're going from either the old way of like, all right, can I include this library and not break everything? Or do I include, I remember that like the hard way for me learning CSS and SAS and uh, less or whatever else was out at the time was like, okay, how do I include this so that everything loads properly, renders properly, all that sort of stuff. And now you're kind of still in the opposite thing where everything's not loaded globally, so you're just having to maybe even learn where that place is where you switch to the config thing. I think this is what's kind of maybe difficult about it is you're like, if you, if, once you figure it out, you're like, yeah. But in the learning, like, uh, how, do I, how do I include this globally or how do I even approach this, which probably goes back to the I think things being a little bit vague on how to proceed or go forward with developing an application or maybe what the biggest differences are. So like 
I don't know if you could write a guide for, hey, if you learn Rails at Rails 4.2 or at Rails 4.25 and you just, in the, this is new to you, this is how it is. But I think that there's almost a relearning that has to happen with just how you even want to manage or um, include your assets across the board, whether that be CSS, images, or JS. But I think the biggest problem with JS right now, since that's going to be included by default in Rails 6, but uh, even with Webpacker, that's usually what most people opt for now is doing it with JavaScript assets. Yeah, one thing I'll say about that is it does make you... It, it makes you have to sit and think about, do I really, do I need this here or do I need this everywhere? And like, okay, why do I need it? Every-? Like jQuery, yeah, you might need it everywhere. But if you're starting to move away from jQuery to ES6 or something like that, then you can start including it only in the files. And then you know, okay, this file doesn't include jQuery. So I know there's nothing that I need to refactor in here if I'm maybe touching it or something. But I don't know, it, it helps kind of, separate out some of those things like, okay, I need moment.js here, or I need jQuery here, or I don't need it in these files. And I think that's kind of helpful to get a better idea of like, maybe I don't need that globally. Yeah. You know, one tidbit of information or tip that I like, that I tried to follow is, let's say if I'm using Bootstrap 4. Bootstrap 4 still has a dependency of jQuery. So I have to add it in. And it has to be added in globally in order for the Bootstrap's JavaScript to function properly. However, at this point in that application, jQuery is a dependency of Bootstrap. It is not a dependency of my application. Just because I've added jQuery in globally for the use of Bootstrap, doesn't mean that I should start using jQuery in my other JavaScript files because then jQuery has become a dependency of my project as well. So if I ever do want to upgrade to Bootstrap 5, which I think it's roadmap to remove jQuery as a dependency, then jQuery is still going to be a dependency of my application. So if you are wanting to move away from jQuery, but you still have the need for something like Bootstrap, then add in Bootstrap and add in jQuery because it's a dependency of Bootstrap, but don't start using the jQuery syntax within your JavaScript files. Keep that still vanilla JS because that's going to allow you to upgrade or extract out Bootstrap a lot easier down the road or upgrade it to the newer version, which doesn't have jQuery as a dependency. That's a great point. I remember being super confused when I, I, I started following a few conference speakers that I met over the years that were more focused on the JavaScript front of the world. And I remember there was this, that whole debate, and it probably still goes on, uh, about like whether I should use JS, whether I should use this kind of JS, whether I should do this thing or that thing. And I think you make a great point in the sense that like a lot of the applications I worked with, especially like, because for me, I got into Rails around Rails 4.2 was they were really heavy on the jQuery because jQuery was the thing. And that's really cool. But even when I moved on to my last job, which was at a place called Isaiah, where we have these, this kind of in-between, we're using Ember app, but we were also had a lot of old jQuery code in there, is that it made removing that kind of stuff such a slog because you were have, you just didn't know. Like you could say, let's, let's remove jQuery and see what happens. And that's a great experiment. But then, like, everything across the board breaks, and then you're like, wait a second. Did I include jQuery Ember as well? Is it here or there? And I think this is a, jQuery is kind of a silent dependency that still makes everything run. Like, as a fun fact about Bootstrap, I don't use a lot of Bootstrap anymore, but I find it really funny because it's been 
you know, Rails removed jQuery for, as a like default forever ago, but a lot of libraries are still depending on it and need it or use it or even a specific version. So you can say, okay, Bootstrap 5 or whatever isn't going to use jQuery, but then you realize, oh, wait, I had Bootstrap 4 here, but then Bootstrap 2.1 in this other side of my app because I had two versions of Bootstrap because I really liked the, ver- the way they did this or whatever. <laughs> and so like, it's happened before. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy to think, but we do a lot of wild stuff to make stuff work, which is cool. But I think that if we didn't learn that lesson with just jQuery vanilla JS, if you give us a lot more libraries, a lot more things, a lot more uh, stuff to shove in there, I don't know if we're going to learn our lesson this time around either. And I think that's kind of the thing that people always reckon with. And you can make the argument with Ruby where you have uh, not necessarily different versions of Rails running an app, but let's say different ways of approaching stuff. Uh, so maybe something that you had to usually do when Rails was in the 2.3 era, but realizing, oh, wait, the standard library applies to this now or that. Like I, I found myself doing a lot of patterns in previous shops where I was just like, I saw this in the app somewhere else, so I guess this works. And then I realized that's a really hard way to do something. It may not be a pure Ruby way to do something. It might just be like an old way to do something. And there's a, there's a newer way that can save me uh, maybe time, but just confusion with syntax or um, even messiness. With just, I never encounter stuff importing stuff, but more so just trying to create a mess out of doing something that could be really simple. Yeah. Was well, there anything else that we kind of want to cover on Webpacker or application maintainability? I mean, there's so much more we could cover. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it can get really slogged down. I think that got the point across, I feel like. So I'm, I'm glad to was something else if you want to. Yeah, so Rails 6 should be released soon. And I really just advise people to kind of give it a shot, you know, start a new Rails application, start a project, and try to reduce the number of gems that you're using and the number of dependencies that you're bringing into an application. And I think that you're going to find that by doing so, you're going to create a long-term maintainable application, especially if you namespace things and keep things pretty organized within the app. Yeah, I'd encourage people just to understand what they're putting in their apps too. I think that's the biggest thing, right? You made a point earlier about a lot of the old like JavaScript frame, like package gems, right? So yeah, like a bootstrap gem. A lot of stuff was just basically, if they were great, but they were just basically importing something. But we just said, I need bootstrap in my application. I don't understand this weird CSS, JS stuff. I just want bootstrap. How do I do it now? Start asking yourselves about those dependencies. You might have done that a couple of years ago when you were trying to get moving. But now Rails 6 is giving you an opportunity to like really slim down a little bit or maybe start over or uh, kind of rethink how you've been approaching something. Yeah. Today's sponsor is Datadog, a monitoring and analytics platform for cloud-scale infrastructure, applications, and logs. Datadog integrates seamlessly with more than 350 technologies so you can track every layer of your complex microservice architecture all in one place. Distributed tracing for Ruby applications and APM provide end-to-end visibility into requests wherever they go, across hosts, containers, and service boundaries. With rich dashboards, algorithmic alerts, and collaboration tools, Datadog provides your team with the tools they need to quickly troubleshoot and optimize modern applications. See for yourself. Start a 14-day free trial today by visiting DTDG, that's Datadog without the A's and O's, DTDG.co slash Ruby Rogues, and Datadog will send you a free t-shirt. All right, shall we move on to picks? Sure. All right, Andrew, you want to kick us off? Sure. So one thing that I've always like, I always have to look this up every single time is, I mean, until I added some snippets to help, but is like writing your migrations, like, 
the syntax for writing migrations is always like something I can never keep in my head for whatever reason, because I don't have to do it all the time. But recently, Jason Sweat created a repo called Migration Builder, and he's kind of experimenting with creating a gem that gives you almost like a like a little prompt when you want to create a migration that's like, all right, do you want to do create or drop or add a column or whatever? And then it kind of helps walk you through it and actually creates the migration for you. And it's not done and he's still working on it, but I thought the proof of concept was like really interesting. So I'll include the link to the video he put on Twitter showing it off a little bit and, and the, uh, the repo link. But yeah, I think this is pretty cool. I'm going to keep watching it and maybe see if I can help out a little bit. I think it'd be hard sell to try to convince someone to let me put it in an app, but if you can like put it on, on your own or maybe um, learn how to configure it so that it'll just tell you what the code would be, I think that that would be pretty cool. Yeah. You know, there's something that DHH worked on many years ago called Conductor, and it is essentially a user interface within the Rails application. So you know how you how you have like your Rails routes that you can visit to that path. But Conductor was supposed to be a GUI for doing stuff like managing your models and tables and potentially also like the migrations. So I could see Jason's effort being ported over into Conductor, which they've merged a very simple base version of it into uh, the Rails master branch. So it really could have a fit there. And then it's not a matter of if I'm allowed to add this into the application. It's just there and available for us. That's an interesting point. That's really cool. So I'll jump in with a few picks. So my wife was out of town for a few days and I was left alone with my son. So one out of three kids. So it wasn't too bad. But I took him out to Micro Center, which is a local computer store. We bought arcade joysticks and buttons And with the Raspberry Pi and all my woodworking tools, we built a little desktop arcade machine so that he could play all the retro Nintendo games and stuff like that. So my pick is, uh, and I'll post a link to the show notes to it, but just the joysticks and buttons and stuff. So you could build a fully-fledged arcade machine for like 100 bucks minus like the cost of the wood. And the second one is I recently ordered pizza also while the wife was out of town. And I had installed this Chrome extension that I had completely forgotten about, but it's called Honey. And essentially what it does is it goes out and it looks for all the different coupon codes and different things that are available. Like, And it tries to apply them at your time of checkout and it'll try to find the best deal for you. So I ended up saving like $8 on my pizza. So it was uh, pretty awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. And Taylor, uh, do you have picks? Yes, I do. There's two things that I've been reading a lot this week. One of them, and I will post about these links to the show notes as well. Uh, one of them, uh, Slack's engineering team, I mentioned this earlier in the episode, but they did uh, basically rewrite the Slack. If you don't use Slack uh, and you haven't noticed it, or it, like they basically used to have a really um, memory-consuming, very uh, sometimes crashing application that was a little bit crazy if, you had, if you're part of multiple namespaces. They did a rewrite, uh, and it was kind of interesting to hear how they went about it, but they released a big kind of product of that rewrite about two or three weeks ago. And it's really relevant, I think, to a lot of stuff we talked about because it kind of talks about this idea of, okay, I'm using this older version of jQuery. I'm using these older ways of doing JavaScript, but now it's you know 2019, and 
there's all this stuff at our at disposal that can make your app a lot faster or give us the opportunity to really start thinking about these problems. So if you're ever thinking about, okay, I have all this old JavaScript, how do I make it not only newer, but better? They might have some inspiration for your team. The second one is, uh, and not to promote everything that's Basecampy or Railsy, but uh, Basecamp does have a really cool book called Shape Up I've been reading uh, this week. It's been a really interesting kind of way about them sharing how they develop products. Um, it's not necessarily just only interesting if you're a product manager, but if you're just interested in how uh, other people develop and write software, um, maybe there's something that you can apply at least into your own personal discipline. Uh, so I'm a little bit through it, but I'm really enjoying it because I think it's some really valuable um, insight, at least from their perspective, of developing a product based on. Awesome. Well, Taylor, if people want to find you online, where should they go? I am basically under everything as the handle high on Taylor Jones. Uh, so I'm under Twitter under high on Taylor Jones as well as GitHub. And I also have a personal site, high on Taylor Jones.com. I haven't been updating those things a lot lately. Probably should more, but that's kind of, if anything that I'm doing in terms of programming life, writing, whatever, it's probably going to show up in one of those spaces. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on and talking to us today and I'm sure we'll chat later. Of course. Thank you for having me on. Bye, guys. See you later. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.